0: Why do you love it so much?
1: I think if you own your own business, you have to be prepared to take risks.
0: Being a woman doesn't hold you back from
1: achieving success. Yep, so if you're struggling, just stop and pause and, and really reflect on why am I struggling here. I've also worked really hard and telling me it's
0: luck, I think, just takes away some of that recognition of the hard work. One last question. Welcome to Tea with the Queen, a show where I talk with some of my favourite go-getters, inspiring and courageous women in leadership and business. I'm your host, Emma McQueen. I'm a business coach, executive coach, author and speaker, and for 20 years I've been working with women to unlock their potential and get paid their worth while doing work they love. Today's guest has participated in the Olympic Games. Well, okay. Okay. She didn't compete as such, but her job was as Olympian in proportion as any athlete. Neve O'Malley used to own an event cleaning business, which won lucrative international contracts, including the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 2010. What a go-getter! Today, Neve's a senior manager at not-for-profit organisation Brotherhood of St Lawrence. I hope you enjoy this interview. Neve, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Em. The Brotherhood of St Lawrence is a fairly well-known organisation in Australia with a long history, but
1: what precisely do you do? Uh, the Brotherhood is a long history in dealing with those who are most vulnerable in our community, those who are experiencing poverty or disadvantage, and this year actually marks our 90th anniversary. Wow. Um, it's hard to believe that actually it's still such a prevalent issue in our community and that the Brotherhood services are needed, It provides much needed services in 2020 um, and I guess a question for me is how far have we come as a community? The Brotherhood's aim is to build the capacity of over 150,000 people across the life of our strategy to uh, enable them to find sustainable pathways out of poverty. And what do you do there? I work with the fabulous ICT team, the volunteer services team, people and culture and facilities and assets and my title is the Director of Shared Services. That's a big role. Sure is. A great team.
0: So you've talked about poverty being its focus and that it's in the 90th year and that indeed the eradication of poverty is the Brotherhood's vision. How is Australia tackling poverty? It's a very big question, I realise, but what are your thoughts
1: on it? Well, it's hard to imagine that 3.2 million people in Australia are living below the poverty line. And if you think about some statistics in other areas, five million Australians have been without food or food insecure in the last 12 months. So that's the entire population of Victoria.
0: Wow, that sucks. It does. Tell me, is that what drives you?
1: Opportunity drives me, providing opportunity for others, and the Brotherhood's actually provided me plenty of opportunity. I joined the Brotherhood for a three-month part-time contract Here I am five jobs later and nearly nine years later. So I've seen fantastic stories about success with clients and participants, but also lots of success with our volunteers who have gone on to be employees of the organisation.
0: That's a long tenure in any organisation. How do you keep yourself fresh?
1: Um, I think it's about surrounding yourself and building a really good team, people who are going to bring ideas to the table. People are going to always seek to do things differently, improve. Continuous improvement is a big thing in the shared services space, and we certainly have lots of opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Um, The most vulnerable are our Indigenous communities in remote corners of the country. What can be done to help alleviate those families and children in poverty?
1: One of the Brotherhood's really successful programs is the Hippie Program, which sets up parents to be their first, their child's first teacher in prep for school. It provides employment for people, as well as getting children ready, school ready. We actually have several sites, 100 sites across Australia, but several of those are actually in remote Indigenous communities. And the longitudinal study is actually demonstrating that these have been a success.
0: Before the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, you co-owned and managed a successful event cleaning business, you had major international contracts, didn't you, including several
1: places at the
0: Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics?
1: We sure did. Sure did. Um, that's been a hell of a ride. <laughs> Talk about opportunity and opportunities for me to stretch myself as, uh, in my career, um, but also stretch myself because I never thought I'd be cleaning toilets at, uh, in my 30s. Um, but it's been an exciting ride. As I said, we were delivering housekeeping services in Mount Hotham in 2005 when it was announced that London would be hosting the 2012 Olympics. So we said we're going to go for it, that's going to be our aim, that's our long-term strategy, but what are we going to do between now and then to get there? So we'd been working on other events such as Big Day Out, Australia Day Celebrations, uh, Sydney New Year's, which was um, crazy, picking up cardboard that looks like bark in across parks after the fireworks is always a bit of a challenge. Um, so we thought, how are we going to get to 2012? And we started bidding on Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006. So a pretty new company. We're only a couple of years old. And lo and behold, we end up winning the most venues for the cleaning and waste. But they were small venues, lawn bowls, not exactly massive crowds, but it was manageable. And it actually got us onto that platform of those Olympics and Commonwealth Games, which is great for our reputation. But we also knew we had to get to the UK market prior to 2012 and how were we going to do that. So we bid on and were successful for the Reading Festival, which uh, is a four-day music festival, 74,000 punters living in a field, me living in the caravan, which was named the Lady Van for a month on site, while we recruited 160 staff to camp on, live on site as well. It was amazing. (laughs) mind-blowing. Got to see some great bands, I will tell you that. But it was a real challenge in terms of building that team and keeping the momentum going because it's not a glamorous job. So bringing a sense of team. So our crew were called the Duggies, given the business name that we had. So building on a brand for our team as well was really important. Providing activities and fun things to do. Um, We had a dress-up party I uh, had to bring something from the field. The costumes were very inventive and they were awarded a golden toilet brush award for the best dressed, which was fantastic.
0: It's interesting because when we think about leadership, we think about working in an office or a corporate or something else. But you actually went out, out on the gr- physically on the ground and developed this amazing culture and you had those people that continued and stayed with you for years to come didn't you
1: yeah so I look back at Mount Hotham 2005 and I was given about three weeks to find 16 people to go up onto the mountain that was a pretty mighty task and as you can imagine a lot of the people we attracted were backpackers who wanted the sex drugs and rock and roll of the ski season lo and behold they didn't know that they weren't going to be living on the mountain we had them living in bright and they had to commute every day which was a challenge when the snow fell and the snow fell heavy at times. But one lad that stands out for me, I remember he came in for an interview. He was one of the last that we put on. He had his hoodie on, he came in a puff of smoke. He just had his rollie out the front. And it was quite clear his motivation was not about cleaning toilets or housekeeping, as whose is, but he wanted the lifestyle. He wanted to be snowboarding, partying by day, snowboarding between work. And I gave him a shot, said, yep, off you go. But I said to my business partner at the time, just watch him, (laughs) something about him. So this lad decided, I don't really want to clean, you know, chalets. I don't want to make beds. So he put his hand up for our linen and logistics role, which is actually probably the critical role because the linen had to get off the mountain, laundered, packed and ready to be delivered for quick turnovers. So we end up with some pretty impressive guns, lugging linen every day. And he ended up being part of our Melbourne 2006 bid team. And if I go down the road five years later, he was our main venue manager for the three premium sites for Vancouver Winter Olympics. He did a sterling job. Why do you think he stayed with you? I think it was about opportunity. We trusted him to do the job. We backed him to do the job. We told him there are going to be times when we bugger it up. But that's okay. What do we learn from it? Um, and how do we build your career? We really invested in him. We actually tried to sponsor him to stay in Australia, but we were unsuccessful. And he used to go through waves where he'd say, like, you know, the cleaners are the shit kickers. No one respects us. Where I'm like, we're actually really important. We're actually probably the most important function in a venue. Because if it's not clean, no one's going to have fun. If we don't turn that stadium over, the next group of, you know, 50,000 people standing outside ain't going to enjoy the ice hockey
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because what I'm hearing, which you haven't said, but what I'm hearing is that you had a really clear kind of goal to get to the next lot of venues and also that you played to his strengths. So he got to choose what he wanted to do, not knowing that it was the toughest gig in the place, but that you played to his strengths. And it's interesting to me because obviously everything you did made him extremely loyal to the organisation.
1: Yeah and I think it's around the culture that you build and as a leader I think you have to be authentic it's not about being this stony-faced hard-arsed you know woman in leadership it's actually about fostering the spirit of team and that sense of team and belonging um, which is really important to me. Did you do that deliberately or is that natural to you? I think that comes naturally to me. Um, How this opportunity about being a partner in this cleaning business came about was uh, through a circle of friends and someone reached out and said, I think I've got a job for you. And I said, why me? And he said, because I see how you connect people, how you bring people together. um, And that sense of fostering teamwork or mateship in that that instance um, is really important. Yeah, it's
0: interesting because I think when you uh are... A leader in an organisation, you can get wrapped up in the politics of an organisation, you can get wrapped up in all the other crap that actually doesn't matter. But if you're vulnerable and authentic and you're focused on people, which I know you're very focused on people, then that drives results because you just get results through working through others. And having worked with you for some time, I can see that you're so people-oriented as a leader and that you trust your people just to get on and do the job and you're okay for them to make mistakes.
1: Absolutely. Um, My ethos is GSD. Just get stuff done. (laughs) Um, And I think most of my crew will actually say, yes, Neve. GSD. We'll just sort it out. Don't worry about it. But you've got to trust your people to do your job. Recruit the right people in the role. I don't need to be doing five people's jobs. I need to be doing my job. And my job is supporting my four direct reports, who are all fantastic.
0: I love that even from doing all your event stuff years and years ago, it's all led to this point where you've done so many different things, but turned your hand to things and taken opportunities as they are. How have you brought that into what could be perceived as a corporate environment? Obviously, it's a not-for-profit, but you still run it like that. It's still run like a corporate environment. How do you translate bringing it from the snowfields to bringing it into a not-for-profit?
1: You're challenged by any environment and it's always going to be different. But I think if you're authentic and you're yourself, then that kind of naturally unfolds. I don't have any secret formula. I wish I did because I'd be delivering it down people's throats. (laughs) 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 Um, And for me, I think I've never had a plan for my career. I actually studied gold and silversmithing at university. Um, I did my honours degree, so four and a half years of hard slog. I was working in hospitality at the time, as you do through uni. I continued doing that. I went travelling. I fell into HR just by accident, came back to Australia, worked in HR uh, with ANSED Air New Zealand. And obviously, we know what happened there. I was out of work with a gold and silversmithing degree, trying to break into the HR market. I cold called. I wrote letters But I was competing with 16,000 ANSET staff who were also out of work. And at the time, if you remember, they had preferential treatment over employment opportunities. I mean, you're a typical go-getter, right? What is it that drives you? I don't see myself as a go-getter, Em. Ah. I see, when I look at myself, I've just made the most of every opportunity that's presented itself. My Nana Summers used to say, what's for you should not pass you by. Um, And I firmly believe in that. I had probably two small goals that I wanted to achieve. I wanted to be in a leadership role in an organisation and I also wanted to be on a board, but I didn't have any plan of how to get there or how to do it.
0: You may not have had a plan, but from what you've just told us, you found yourself without work and so you just picked up the phone and cold called. So maybe there was no grand plan, but you obviously taking steps each day to
1: get where you needed to get to. Absolutely. I was pretty determined. There was a period of unemployment. I ended up being on welfare benefits for a short period of time. That was really humbling and eye-opening and interesting that the brotherhood and I found ourselves together, you know, many, many years down the track.
0: Yeah. Do you feel a certain affinity to brotherhood and other not-for-profits because of that time on welfare?
1: Yes, but I also think that comes from my parents. My parents were very, very community-minded they started a little athletics club down where we grew up, very involved in the Irish community in Melbourne. And their sense of giving back was really prevalent through our childhood. Yeah, that's lovely. So it's not just about
0: you didn't learn it later. It's weaved all through your life. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What um, Can you share your lessons in leadership from your journey? And um, maybe for our listeners, we like to leave them some practical tips. What are some things that...
1: Yeah, what lessons did you have and what did you learn? Uh, There are several, I think. One of them was about being brave or stupid, about challenging yourself. You may not think you're going to win, but give it a shot. The dilemma comes when you actually win a job and go, what am I going to do now? And you should throw your hat in the ring all the time. And I talk about that as as in not only going for a job, but bidding on work said the dilemma comes when you actually land it and think how the hell am I going to deliver it, which is what I thought around Vancouver 2010. I was the one who worked on the bid over the Easter weekend, got it in, then when we were shortlisted and interviewed and flown over to Vancouver to further that bid, I was on the plane thinking how the hell are we going to do this? I'm going to have to pack up my life, I'm going to have to move to Vancouver, I'm going to have to recruit 570 staff... In a country I don't know, I had to navigate new employment laws, banking, legal, you name it, but it was just how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And the Olympics process was actually really interesting because it was 12 months of planning. It was rigorous planning. And every step of the way, we had to have our uniforms approved, you know, down to the nth degree around what equipment we're bringing on site. And I think one of the other things about leadership is being vulnerable. I talk about being authentic, but also being vulnerable in that space. And apart from crying, when I saw KD Lang live singing Alleluia at the opening ceremony, I was actually really overwhelmed. And I had a moment in the stands as the stadium cleared out, when I looked at the job that we had ahead to get this stadium turned around by the next day. And I said to the team, like, Neva, you all right? And I said, no, I just don't know how we're going to do this. And they're like, we're fine. We're going to be fine. We've got this planned out because I was thinking, what about staff coming in? If they got their accreditation? if they got their uniform? Are they going to be able to find the entry in? Blah, 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 blah. And it was just so overwhelming. But the team actually buoyed me through that. And I think that was about the culture that we we created around we're in it together.
0: I love the fact that you bring out vulnerability because I think, actually think that's the, a secret weapon for a lot of leaders and I don't mean it as though they cultivate that I think vulnerability is you are just vulnerable as an individual right and it seeps out through your leadership but I think if a leader is vulnerable then it creates this culture of trust and loyalty which is what you experienced in that moment
1: what else Uh, walk the talk be prepared to do what you ask your team to do I've had my head in toilets, I've seen things that I dare not think the human race was actually capable of across event sites. I could go into further detail, but I may shock you. <laughs> we want the audience to hang in there with us. <laughs> yeah, and another, I think another thing is about embracing your team, embracing the talents and the skills that they bring, connecting people across who can support each other, and it may come across that I'm talking about, you know, these, you're becoming friends with your team. I was friendly, but they're not my friends. And I think that's a really important distinction to make, not managing through friendships, managing your team in a friendly, embracing, encouraging, inclusive way.
0: How do you make sure that you don't cross that line? because I think that's really hard for leaders. They find themselves being friendly, but then becoming friends, and it causes a lot of issues down the track, especially in corporate and not-for-profits.
1: One simple thing, and I, I separate church and state is what I call it. I have two phones, one's a work phone, one's a personal phone, and it's just about personal boundaries. I'll share anecdotes about you know my life, but there's a whole lot I don't. There's a whole lot that gets left at the front door. Yeah, yeah, I like that. What else, what other leadership lessons do you have for us? I think about being determined and being adaptable. So coming out of an event site where we're bumping out of sight, having to return farmlands to the pristine condition it was before, even with the cow poo, you've got to remove every bottle cap, every can, every bit of plastic you can possibly, yeah, it's a thorough comb over. And we were finishing on site, but I had a payroll to run for 160 people my office was gone in the morning so I had a desk in a field later that afternoon I had no desk because it had been packed off site so I was at the gatehouse of the farm which was just a small little cubicle running payroll for 160 people so it was about being adaptable making sure I had a you know there was a step plan (laughs) around how to get the outcome I needed and I just said to the lads straight up as long as I've got power I'll be right So I end up sitting on a camp chair with an ottoman that was found in a field running payroll. Adaptable, all right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you got any other
1: lessons for us? Celebrate the wins. Yeah, really celebrate the wins. Shout out to your team when they've done a great job. And don't be afraid to share the mistakes without embarrassing anyone. But it's like, what did we learn from that and how do we not replicate the same issue? That's really important. And I think the team feel comfortable enough in that space that they will end up fessing up to their mistakes sooner rather than later and you can sort it out.
0: And celebrate the wins is something that I know that you are really passionate about and have brought back to brotherhood because obviously it helps boost morale, it's good for culture. We often forget to celebrate the wins, don't we? Absolutely. So it's nice that it's at
1: the forefront of your... Brain box. What else? What other little tips have you got for us? Listen to your crew. Listen to what they've got to say. Some people don't necessarily need you to agree with them, they don't need you to provide a solution. They just need you to listen. So they just want to feel heard? Yep. I love that. As a leader, you need to look after yourself. It's not necessarily about putting yourself first all the time, but making sure you're in the best possible frame in order to be able to lead your team through whatever you've got ahead of you.
0: And how do you do that for yourself?
1: Making sure I catch up with friends, uh, giving myself time to read a book, which I'm shameful at. I've got a book that I've been reading for six months. I get through two pages and fall asleep, but at least I'm sort of probably giving it a go. Are you sure it's not just a crappy book? No, it's a pretty good book. <laughs> 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 yep. Um, I try to go for a walk every day. It's been a real challenge in this COVID environment. I did have a period of time where I think, uh, I actually haven't left the house in a week. It was 15 steps one way to the fridge and 15 steps the other way to the bathroom. So making a conscious decision to get out and about, even if it is freezing.
0: It's really interesting because you uh, started by saying you don't think you're a go-getter. And I have to come back to that because part of being a go-getter is about being determined. It's about being resilient. It's about being driven. It's about finding solutions, about being opportunistic. So I would argue about the go-getter thing, but we'll give you the book and see what you reckon. (laughs) Um, Tell us, as we close out, and thank you so much for your time, but as we close out, how can people support brotherhood?
1: In multiple ways. Visit bsl.org.au. You can donate goods for our community stores you can donate time by volunteering and you can obviously make a financial donation which will go towards our programs in which we pilot research evidence and appeal to government for broader broader funding for those programs
0: yeah it's awesome i mean the brotherhood is awesome work i love you guys at the brotherhood and i think you're doing amazing things and thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us about all things leadership i've loved it thank you emma That's Nevo O'Malley. That's it for this episode of Tea with the Queen. If you love this episode, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And you're very welcome to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word. You can contact me directly at my website at au. It's also where you'll find my book, Go Getter. Speak to you soon.